0: Chapter 28 of the Life of St. Teresa of Jesus of the Order of Our Lady of Carmel. This is a Discerning Hearts recording read by Chris McGregor. The Life of St. Teresa of Jesus of the Order of Our Lady of Carmel, written by herself and translated from the Spanish by David Lewis. I now resume our subject. I spent some days, not many, with that vision continually before me. It did me so much good that I never ceased to pray. Even when I did cease, I contrived that it should be in such a way as that I should not displease him whom I saw so clearly present, an eyewitness of my acts. And though I was occasionally afraid because so much was said to me about delusions, that fear lasted not long because our Lord reassured me. It pleased our Lord one day that I was in prayer to show me his hands and his hands only. The beauty of them was so great that no language can describe it. This put me in great fear for everything that is strange in the beginning of any new grace from God makes me very much afraid. A few days later I saw his divine face and I was utterly entranced. I could not understand why our Lord showed himself in this way seeing that afterwards He granted me the grace of seeing his whole person. Later on, I understood that his majesty was dealing with me according to the weakness of my nature. May he be blessed forever. A glory so great was more than one so base and wicked could bear. And our merciful Lord, knowing this, ordered it in this way. You will think, my father, that it required no great courage to look upon hands and face, so beautiful. But so beautiful are glorified bodies that the glory which surrounds them renders those who see that which is so supernatural and beautiful beside themselves. It was so with me. I was in such great fear, trouble, and perplexity at the sight. You will think, my father, that it required no great courage to look upon hands and face so beautiful. But so beautiful are glorified bodies that the glory which surrounds them renders those who see that which is so supernatural and beautiful beside themselves. It was so with me. I was in such great fear, trouble, and perplexity at the sight. Afterwards, there ensued a sense of safety and certainty, together with other results, so that all fear passed immediately away. On one of the Feasts of St. Paul, when I was at Mass, there stood before me the most sacred humanity, as painters represent him after the resurrection, in great beauty and majesty, as I particularly described it to you, my father, when you had insisted on it. It was painful enough to have to write about it, for I could not describe it without doing great violence to myself. But I described it as well as I could, and there is no reason why I should now recur to it. One thing, however, I have to say. If in heaven itself there was nothing else to delight our eyes but the great beauty of glorified bodies, that would be an excessive bliss, particularly the vision of the humanity of Jesus Christ our Lord. If here below, where His Majesty shows Himself to us according to the measure which our wretchedness can bear, it is so great. What? must it be there, where the fruition of it is complete. This vision, though imaginary, I never saw with my bodily eyes, nor indeed any other, but only with the eyes of the soul. Those who understand these things better than I do say that the intellectual vision is more perfect than this, and this, the imaginary vision, much more perfect than those visions which are seen by bodily eyes. The latter kind of visions, they say, is the lowest. And it is by these that the devil can most delude us. I did not know it then, for I wished, when this grace had been granted me, that it had been so in such a way that I could see it with my bodily eyes, in order that my confessor might not say to me that I indulged in fantasies. After the vision was over, it happened that I too imagined The thought came at once. I had fancied these things. So I was distressed, because I had spoken of them to my confessor, thinking that I might have been deceiving him. There was another lamentation. I went to my confessor and I told him of my doubts. He would ask me whether I told him the truth so far as I knew it, or if not, had I intended to deceive him. I would reply that I told the truth. For, to the best of my belief, I did not lie, nor did I mean anything of the kind. Neither would I tell a lie for the whole world. This he knew well enough, and accordingly he contrived to quiet me, and I felt so much the going to him with these doubts that I cannot tell how Satan could have put it in my head that I invented those things for the purpose of tormenting myself. But our Lord made such haste to bestow this grace upon me and to declare the reality of it, that all doubts of the vision, being a fancy on my part, were quickly taken away. And ever since, I see most clearly how silly I was. For if I were to spend many years in devising how to picture to myself anything so beautiful, I should never be able, nor even know how, to do it. For it is beyond the reach of any possible imagination here below the whiteness and brilliance alone are inconceivable it is not a brilliance which dazzles but a delicate whiteness and a brilliance infused furnishing the most excessive delight to the eyes never wearied thereby nor by the visible brightness which enables us to see a beauty so divine. It is a light so different from any light here below that the very brightness of the sun we see, in comparison with the brightness in the light before our eyes, seems to be something so obscure that no one would ever wish to open his eyes again. It is like most pellucid water running in a bed of crystal reflecting the rays of the sun compared with the most muddy water on a cloudy day flowing on the surface of the earth. Not that there is anything like the sun present here, nor is the light like that of the sun. This light seems to be natural, and in comparison with it, every other light is something artificial. It is a light which knows no night, as it is always light, Nothing ever disturbs it. In short, it is such that no man, however gifted he may be, can ever, in the whole course of his life, arrive at any imagination of what it is. God puts it before us so instantaneously that we could not open our eyes in time to see it, if it were necessary for us to open them at all. But whether our eyes be open or shut, it makes no difference whatever. For when our Lord wills, we must see it, whether we will or not. No distraction can shut it out. No power can resist it, nor can we attain it by any diligence or efforts of our own. I know this by experience well, as I shall show you. That which I wish now to speak of is the manner in which our Lord manifests himself in these visions. I do not mean that I'm going to explain how it is that a light so strong can enter the interior sense or so distinct an image the understanding, so as to seem to be really there. For this must be the work for learned men. Our Lord has not been pleased to let me understand how it is. I am so ignorant myself and so dull of understanding that although people have very much wished to explain it to me, I have never been able to understand how it can be. This is the truth. Though you, my father, may think that I have a quick understanding, it is not so. For I have found out in many ways that my understanding can take in only, as they say, what is given to it to eat. Sometimes my confessor used to be amazed at my ignorance. And he never explained to me, nor indeed did I ever desire to understand how God did this, nor how it could be. Nor did I ever ask, though as I have said, I had conversed for many years with men of great learning. But I did ask them if this or that were a sin or not. As for everything else, The thought that God did it all was enough for me. I saw there was no reason to be afraid, but great reason to praise him. On the other hand, difficulties increase my devotion, and the greater the difficulty, the greater the increase. For I will therefore relate what my experience has shown me, but how our Lord brought it about, you, my Father, will explain better than I can and make clear all that is obscure and beyond my skill to explain. Now and then, it seemed to me that what I saw was an image, but most frequently it was not so. I thought it was Christ himself, judging by the brightness in which he was so pleased to show himself. Sometimes the vision was so indistinct that I thought it was an image but still not like a picture, however well painted. And I have seen many good pictures. It would be absurd to suppose that the one bears any resemblance whatever to the other, for they differ as living persons differ from his portrait, which, however well drawn, cannot be lifelike, for it is plain that it is a dead thing. But let this pass though to the purpose, and literally true. I do not say this by way of comparison, for comparisons are never exact, but because it is the truth itself, as there is the same difference here that there is between a living subject and the portrait thereof, neither more nor less. For what I saw was an image. It was a living image. Not a dead man, but the living Christ. And he makes me see he is God and man. Not as he was in the sepulcher, but as he was when he had gone forth from it, risen from the dead. He comes at times in majesty so great that no one can have any doubt that it is our Lord himself, especially after communion. We know that he is then present, for faith says so. He shows himself so clearly to be the Lord of that little dwelling place that the soul seems to be dissolved and lost in Christ. O my Jesus, who can describe the majesty wherein thou showest thyself? How utterly thou art the Lord of the whole world, and of heaven, and of a thousand other innumerable worlds. And heavens, the creation of which is possible to thee. The soul understands by that majesty wherein thou showest thyself that it is nothing for thee to be Lord of all this. Here it is plain. O my Jesus, how slight is the power of all the devils in comparison with thine and how he who is pleasing unto thee is able to tread all hell under his feet. Here we see why the devils trembled when thou didst go down to Limbus and why they might have longed for a thousand hells still lower that they might escape from thy terrible majesty. I see that it is thy will the soul should feel the greatness of thy majesty and the power of thy most sacred humanity united with thy divinity. Here too we see what the day of judgment will be when we shall behold the king in his majesty and in rigor of his justice against the wicked. Here we learn true humility, imprinted in the soul by the sight of its own wretchedness, of which now it cannot be ignorant. Here also is confusion of face and true repentance for sins, for though the soul sees that our Lord shows how he loves it, yet it knows not where to go, and so is utterly dissolved. My meaning is that so exceedingly great is the power of this vision when our Lord shows the soul much of His grandeur and majesty, that it is impossible, in my opinion, for any soul to endure it, if our Lord did not secure it in a most supernatural way, by throwing it into a trance, or ecstasy, whereby the vision of the Divine Presence is lost in the fruition thereof. It is true that afterwards the vision is forgotten, but there remains so deep an impression of the majesty and beauty of God that it is impossible to forget it, except when our Lord is pleased that the soul should suffer from aridity and desolation, of which I shall speak thereafter but then it seems to forget God himself. The soul is itself no longer. It is always inebriated. It seems as if a living love of God, of the highest kind, made a new beginning within it. For though the former vision which I said represented God without any likeness of himself is of a higher kind, yet because of our weakness, in order that the remembrance of the vision may last, and that our thoughts may be well occupied, it is a great matter that a presence so divine should remain and abide in our imagination. These two kinds of visions come almost always together, and they do so come, for we behold the excellency and beauty and glory of the most holy humanity with the eyes of of the soul. And in any other way I have spoken of, that of intellectual vision, we learn how he is God, is mighty, and can do all things, command all things, govern all things, and fills all things with his love. This vision is to be esteemed very highly, nor is there, in my opinion, any risk in it because the fruits of it show that the devil has no power here. I think he tried three or four times to represent our Lord to me in this way, by a false image of him. He takes the appearance of flesh, but he cannot counterfeit the glory which it has when the vision is from God. Satan makes his representations in order to undo the true vision which the soul has had but the soul resists instinctively, is troubled, disgusted, and restless. It loses that devotion and joy it previously had. but cannot pray at all. In the beginning, it so happened to me three or four times. These satanic visions are very different things, and even he, who shall have attained to the prayer of quiet, only will, I believe, detect them by those results of them which I described when I was speaking of locutions. They are most easily recognized, and if a soul consents not to its own delusion, I do not think that Satan will be able to deceive it, provided it walks in humility and singleness of heart. He who shall have had the true vision coming from God detects the false visions at once. For though they begin with a certain sweetness and joy, the soul rejects them of itself. And the joy which Satan ministers must be, I think, very different. It shows no traces of pure and holy love. Satan very quickly betrays himself. Thus then, as I believe, Satan can do no harm to anyone who has had experience of these things, for it is the most impossible of all impossible things that all this may be the work of the imagination. There is no ground whatever for the supposition, for the very beauty and whiteness of one of our Lord's hands are beyond our imagination altogether. How is it that we see present before us in a moment, what we do not remember, what we have never thought of, and moreover, what, in a long space of time, the imagination could not compass. Because, as I have just said, it far transcends anything we can comprehend in this life. This, then, is not possible, whether we have any power in the matter or not, will appear by what I am now going to say. If the vision were the work of a man's own understanding, setting aside that such a vision would not accomplish the great results of the true one, nor indeed any at all, it would be as the active one who tries to go to sleep and yet continues awake because sleep has not come. He longs for it because of some necessity or weakness in his head. And so he lulls himself to sleep and makes efforts to procure it. And now and then he thinks he has succeeded. But if the sleep be not real, it will not support him nor supply strength to his head. On the contrary, his head will very often be the worse for it. So it will be here in a measure. The soul will be dissipated, neither sustained nor strengthened. On the contrary, it will be wearied and disgusted. But in the true vision, the riches which abide in the soul cannot be described. Even the body receives health and comfort. I urged this argument among others when they told me that my visions came from the evil one and then I imagined them myself, and it was very often, and made use of certain illustrations as well as I could, and as our Lord suggested to me. But all was to little purpose, for as there were most holy persons in the place, in comparison with whom I was a mass of perdition, whom God did not lead by this way, they were at once filled with fear, They thought it all came through my sins and so my state was talked about and came to the knowledge of many and though I had spoken of it to no one except my confessor or to those he commanded me to speak of it, I said to them once, if they who thus speak of my state were to tell me that a person with whom I had just conversed and whom I knew well was not that person but that I was deluding myself and that they knew it, I should certainly trust them rather than my own eyes. But if that person left me with certain jewels, and if possessing none previously, I held the jewels in my hand as pledges of a great love, and if I were now rich instead of poor as before, I should not be able to believe this that they said, though I might wish it. These jewels, I could now show them, for all who knew me saw clearly that my soul was changed. And so my confessor said, for the difference was very great in every way, not a pretense, but such as all might most clearly observe. As I was formerly so wicked, I said, I could not believe that Satan, if he wished to deceive me and take me down to hell, would have recourse to means so adverse to his purpose as this, of rooting out my faults, implanting virtues, and spiritual strength. For I saw clearly that I had become at once another person through the instrumentality of these visions." My confessor, who was, as I said before, one of the fathers of the Society of Jesus and a really holy man, answered them in the same way. So I learned afterwards. He was a most discreet man and of great humility. But this great humility of his brought me into serious trouble, for though he was a man much given to prayer and learned, He never trusted his own judgment, because our Lord was not leading him by this way. He had, therefore, much to suffer on my account, in many ways. I knew they used to say to him that he must be on his guard against me, lest Satan should delude him through a belief in anything I might say to him. They gave instances of others who were deluded. All this distressed me, and I began to be afraid I should find no one to hear my confession and that all would avoid me. I did nothing but weep. It was a providence of God that he was willing to stand by me and hear my confession. But he was so great a servant of God that he would have exposed himself to anything for his sake. So he told me that if I did not offend God, nor swerve from the instructions he gave me, there was no fear I should be deserted by him. He encouraged me always and quieted me. He bade me never to conceal anything from him, and I never did. He used to say that so long as I did this, the devil, if it were the devil, could not hurt me. On the contrary, out of that evil which Satan wished to do me, our Lord would bring forth good. He labored with all his might to make me perfect. As I was very much afraid myself, I obeyed him in everything, though imperfectly. He had much to suffer on my account during three years of trouble and more because he heard my confessions all that time. For in the great persecutions that fell upon me and the many harsh judgments of me which our Lord permitted, many of which I did not deserve, everything was carried to him, and he was found fault with because of me, he being all the while utterly blameless. If he had not been so holy a man, and if our Lord had not been with him, it would have been impossible for him to bear so much, for he had to answer those who regarded him as one going to destruction, and they would not believe what he said to them. On the other hand, he had to quiet me and relieve me of my fears. When my fears increased, he had again to reassure me, For after every vision which was strange to me, our Lord permitted me to remain in great fear. All this was the result of my being then and of having been a sinner. He used to console me out of his great compassion, and if he had trusted to his own convictions, I should not have had so much to suffer, for God revealed the whole truth to him. I believe that he received this light from the blessed sacrament. Those servants of God who were not satisfied had many conversations with me. As I spoke to them carelessly, so they misunderstood my meaning in many things. I had a great regard for one of them, for my soul owed him much more than I can tell. He was the most holy man, and I felt it most acutely when I saw that he did not understand me. He had a great desire for my improvement, and hoped our Lord would enlighten me. So then, because I spoke, as I was saying, without careful consideration, they looked upon me as deficient in humility, and when they detected any of my faults, they might have detected many, they condemned me at once. They used to put certain questions to me which I answered simply and carelessly. Then they concluded forthwith that I wished to teach them and that I considered myself to be a learned woman. All this was carried to my confessor, for certainly they desired my amendment. And so he would reprimand me. This lasted some time, and I was distressed on many sides. But with the graces which our Lord gave me, I bore it all. I relate this in order that people may see what a great trial it is not to find anyone who knows this way of the Spirit by experience. If our Lord had not dealt so favorably with me, I know not what would have become of me. There were some things that were enough to take away my reason. And now and then I was reduced to such straits that I could do nothing but lift up my eyes to our Lord. The contradiction of good people, which a wretched woman weak and wicked and timid as I am, must bear with, seems to be nothing when thus described. But I, who in the course of my life passed through very great trials, found this one of the heaviest. May our Lord grant that I may have pleased His Majesty a little herein, for I am sure that they pleased Him who condemned and rebuked me, and that it was all for my great good.